Good morning, Seabreeze, and happy Father's Day to the dads here. I think it's fitting that the movie for today is X-Men. If you're a father, you are a member of the real X-Men. As fathers, we have, honestly, a power and influence that's far greater than uh, any of the members of the X-Men could ever imagine. The movie we're looking at today is the ninth installment of the X-Men movie series. These movies are all based, of course, on the Marvel comic book series. And this, uh, the X-Men Marvel comic book was first published in 1963, and this is what an original copy looked like. In fact, if you're still looking for a Father's Day gift, you can buy this on uh, eBay for $13,500. So if that fits within your price range, uh, I imagine a copy is still available for that price. The storyline of uh, this particular movie is about a supervillain called Apocalypse. He was created and first appeared in the 1986 comic. And the reason he was invented is because the Marvel editors realized that the X-Men were in need of a greater challenge than the normal villains they were facing. And uh, they needed that challenge in order to kind of build the suspense. Honestly, the readership was going down, and so they created Apocalypse to try to get the readers back on board with the X-Men series. And they chose the name Apocalypse because of the world-ending type of power given to this supervillain. Now, apocalypse is actually a Greek word, and it means to reveal what is hidden. It is the name of the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, or, as it's known in the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, the apocalypse. Now, the book of Revelation reveals that God will bring an end to this world and tells us how to prepare for that end. And that's why the term apocalypse is more and more known as uh, something that describes the end of the world. And that's really what this movie is all about. The supervillain apocalypse in this movie has appeared to judge the world. He's found the world to be full of weaklings and unworthy people. And so he sets about to bring an end to this world so that a new one can rise from the ashes of the old one. Well, today we're going to leave the comic book version of how the world's going to end, and we're going to consider what Jesus had to say on the topic. The Bible has a great deal to say about how this world will end, and the purpose uh, behind this communication is not just to satisfy our curiosity about uh, times and locations and where things are going to happen. Uh, the purpose is not just to scare us. The purpose is to be sure that we are fully prepared for the end. The end of this world will come for us in either one of two ways. Either we will die and for us, this world will be no more. Or it will end when Jesus returns to wrap up history and the flow of the world. And this world will end at that point. In either case, either of these two ways, the preparation is exactly the same. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells us how to prepare for the end by uh, telling a parable about two men. One of the men was prepared for the end. The other was not prepared. This parable is Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. So let me read the parable to you. And then we'll draw lessons out of this. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here 
and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. We answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. In this parable, Jesus identifies three very important truths about the end. And for each of these truths, there is a very critical preparation lesson that we're going to look at this morning. The first truth that's apparent in this parable is the timing of the end will be a surprise. The timing of the end is going to be a surprise for us. There are two statements about timing that are made in the opening paragraph of this parable. The first one is the phrase, every day. Describe the the rich man as living in luxury every day. Now, most of life has kind of an everyday feel to it. There's a repetition that tells us what we can expect in the future and forms the patterns of our life. It's how we anticipate what the future might look like. Depending on your personality, you may like a little more variety or a little less, but all of us, if we don't have some repetition, we become very disoriented in life. There's not something that kind of keeps happening, let us know we're on track, then it's very confusing to us. There's nothing wrong with this daily repetition, but the tendency is for us to be lulled into the false illusion that life will go on pretty much as it always has. What we tend to do is take our our life almost like a graph, and we just kind of draw a line, and we project, you know, things are going to go the direction that they've always been going. But that's just not the case. For the rich man in this story, his everyday experience was a very good one. It says he lived in luxury, but it was very different for Lazarus. His everydays were characterized by hunger and pain. For him, a, a good day was whenever some crumbs fell off the rich man's table, and he was able to get to them before anyone else did. Or when the rich man's dogs licked his sores and provided just a moment of relief from pain, that was his definition of a good day. So every day for him was, was, was an awful day. But it says, then the time came, and this is the second reference to time. There's all these every days, but then there's a moment when the time comes. After a lifetime of every days, everything suddenly changed. What had been an every day was no more. The last every day was the last of those. Death is always a shock, even when it comes at the end of a long illness. Every single time someone that we love dies, it it, it sends shockwaves to the core of our being. Even if we've been preparing for it for years, it, it still just shakes us deeply. But that's nothing like the shocking change for those who have died and step into the next life. And in this parable, Jesus gives us a glimpse behind the curtain of eternity to to, to see what a great surprise awaits for all of us. So both what we end up experiencing in that end and the timing of our end will be a surprise. So what should we do? The lesson of this truth is don't put this off. Don't put the preparation for the end off. Even if you're young and you think you've got decades ahead of you, you just don't know. So we can't put this off. Listen to this warning about the return of Christ, one of the ways this world will end, either the return of Christ or through our death. But this is what it says about the return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. 
says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety. Why are they saying peace and safety? Because that's what they've been experiencing. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So first it says that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, thieves don't call ahead and schedule appointments. They don't check to see if you're available, if you're going to be out of town for a while, uh, so that they can schedule a time that when it's best to rob you. They show up at a surprising moment. Two months after my wife and I were married, our apartment was robbed, and, and we were stunned. We'd both grown up in different homes, obviously, and neither of our families growing up had ever had a robbery occur. We, we understood that robberies did occur. We would, we would maybe read about them or hear stories about them. I can't remember if we knew anyone at that time that had been robbed, but for us, it was a brand new experience, and so it was shocking. That event really honestly shattered our false sense of security. You know, we'll never forget walking into our apartment and just seeing it tossed and all of our stuff gone through. It just really shook us. So what do you do with that? Do you just live in fear? Well, that's not a productive response. The best response is to get ready for it happening again. So I became very serious about locking the doors and locking all the windows you know, every night and making sure everything was secure, fortify the weak spots and develop a security plan. But to be honest, since we were robbed early in our marriage, we have now had approximately 11,300 robbery-free days. We haven't been robbed since then. So honestly, we're kind of back to where we were when we first got married. It's like, ah, nothing's going to happen, never happens. And, you know, it's 30-some years ago that we were robbed, and so it just seems like there's really no need to prepare for it. But I, I, I'm aware that we need to get ready. And so recently I asked a friend of mine who's a police officer to come over to our house and just help us assess our home security. So he walked through the house and began to point out one vulnerability after another. And, uh, and then he asked us what our escape plan was. And I said, our escape plan? He said, yeah, I mean, if there's a home invasion, if someone bursts in the front door and, or you're barricaded in the back, how, how are you going to get out of here? We thought, well, we'll just go out the back door. And then we went out the back door and realized there's a fence all the way around our yard. So how do we get over the fence? It's like, well, we need to put a ladder up against that. And so now we've got a ladder up against our fence, and we've told our neighbor next door that, hey, if you see us jumping over that fence in the middle of the night, don't shoot. We're not intruders. If you hear us knock on the door, you're part of our security plan. We'd never thought of this. We'd never planned for this. And honestly, after an hour of looking at our house through the eyes of this police officer, we were completely freaked out. I mean, we were just, you know, that night we're... <sighs> You know, we just, we just hadn't thought of these things. But it was good. It was healthy for us to think through the fact that we need to better prepare for our security because you just never know. Simply because it hasn't happened for 31 years doesn't mean it's not ever going to happen. So because of that, you get ready. But honestly, the odds of your house being robbed are, are still pretty slim. But the odds of you leaving this life to stand before God, well, that's 100%. That's not robbery odds. That's, well, as it says here, that's more like a woman going into labor. You know, once a woman goes into labor, there is no way to escape going through labor and delivery, is there? I mean, she can't just say, time out, this was a really bad idea. <laughs> Never mind, I was just kidding. No, no, you, you have to go ahead and go through it. At one point during the birth of our daughter, our first, my wife 
looked desperately around the room, and then she looked at me, and I'll just never forget the look in her face and the sound of her voice. She said, isn't anybody going to help me? And I thought, oh, I would love to be able to help, but I, I can't. I mean, I can hold your hand, and there's some supporting things and all the stuff we learned to do, but it, honestly, it was very, very clear that my help wasn't as great as the struggle that she needed to go through. I wanted to help her, but there was very little I could do. She just had to go through it. And that's the image that's given of the end for all of us. We're, we're all going to go through this. There, there's no getting around this. The time, the end will come for all of us. So the lesson is, don't walk into this blind. Don't just assume that, oh, you've got all kinds of time to get ready. That you're going to have, you know, maybe in decades from now, you're going to have a, a, a you know, months-long kind of relaxing deathbed experience, and you'll get ready to be, you know, that's just foolish. Don't put this off. Truth number two, then, is this. The consequences will be permanent. The consequences will be permanent. Now, this, this, is, this is a very different idea for us because in this life, things are pretty fluid. There are consequences to what we do. But because there's more time and there's lots of options and choices we have, it, it, it's, it's a little less secure than what we, what we uh, are going to experience in the life to come. In this life, if we end up messing up or making a mistake, there's a chance that we can go back and make amends and kind of repair things. And yes, there's consequences, but we can kind of you know, rework some things. But even if we can't go back, usually there's enough days and maybe decades left for us to be able to kind of rebuild and start over and build a new future for ourselves. And so we're, we're kind of used to that approach. Like, okay, I made a mistake or I got this one wrong, but now I'll recover and, and now I'll overcome the consequences and I'll move on to the future and things will get better. But once we leave this life, the, the consequences of the decisions we've made in this life are locked in for all of eternity. We can't change our situation at that point. Jesus makes this point very clear by describing uh, an attempt that this rich man makes to change his situation in just the smallest of ways. Here's the request he makes. He says, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Now you can't imagine that that would have provided really any relief. I mean, this is the smallest possible change request that he could have asked for. Just, could you deliver a drop of water and put it on my tongue? And the answer is, it can't be done. Consequences are, we can't, even, we can't even do that. The consequences are locked in. Now, this is shocking stuff that Jesus is talking about here. I mean, obviously, talking about death is a very difficult thing for us to talk about. We, we don't want to even really think about that much. But talking about hell, well, that's downright offensive, especially in our modern culture. Very few people believe that hell is real, or if it is, it's definitely not in their future. A recent Gallup poll found that 78% of Americans believe they're going to heaven, 4% believe that they're going to hell, 18% are kind of undecided on the matter. Now, honestly, early on in my life, when I was more in college and really trying to figure things out about God, I, I tried to explain hell away as kind of something more like a metaphor. You know, an image, an idea for a, a really, really bad day or bad part of this world or bad life. 
But it, it wasn't something real. It was something less than real. But I kept running into one big problem. And here was the big problem. Jesus himself taught that hell is real. And that was a problem for me because I had spent the better part of two years seriously examining all of the evidence about Jesus Christ, not only for his existence, but what he taught and what he did. And I, after I examined all that evidence, I couldn't, I couldn't just easily relegate him to being a good guy with a few wacky ideas. I mean, the evidence is convincing. And so for me to dismiss Jesus and what he taught, well, I would have had to ignore a mountain of evidence. What I'm saying is you cannot believe in a real Jesus. I mean, an imaginary Jesus, a comic book Jesus, yes. But a real, you can't believe in a real Jesus and not believe in a real hell. This story is one example of what Jesus taught. He, he, just, he won't allow for that. So if someone wants to ignore, let's say, the mountain of evidence there is behind the fact that cigarette smoking causes cancer, people can ignore all of the evidence that's out there now, and they can decide to keep smoking. And the consequence of that, well, it might cost them a few years of their life. It might cost them a painful end. But what we're talking about here is not just a few years. We're talking about consequences that are going to be eternal. And so to ignore the mountain of evidence that's behind Jesus and what he taught is a very risky thing to do on this matter. There, there's no undoing this consequence. In other words, it's just a tremendously huge gamble to kind of feel your way to a conclusion on this. And this is what I discover over and over again is people, whenever you talk about this topic and they disagree and you ask them why, they say, I just, I can't believe in that. I just don't believe that there, there would be a place like this. Well, what, what evidence do you have to support that? And what evidence do you have that that would communicate that Jesus wasn't a real person of history and he didn't really say this and he, he was kind of a crackpot? What evidence do you have behind that? I have yet to find someone and say, well, here's all the evidence that I found. It's almost always, nah, I just, I just don't feel that's, 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 that's true. Well, it's a huge gamble to kind of feel your way to a, an eternal conclusion. It's a very foolish thing to do. So the lesson on this is don't ignore Christ. Don't ignore. If you're, if you're confused, that's fine. Figure this out. But don't ignore him. You see, Jesus didn't just teach on hell. He came to rescue us from that horrible eternity. Now, what's the answer to the request for pity that this rich man gives? The answer is, it can't be done. You can't cross over. No one can cross over there. Not, it won't be done. Not, I won't do it. I don't know, but I can't do it. So this, he asked for pity, but this isn't a matter of pity. This is a matter of reality. Like, I, I can't breathe underwater. It's a matter of reality. I, 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 this can't be done. Because, as it says, there is a great chasm, not temporarily in place, fixed. It's fixed. Once this life is over, we're on one side of this great chasm or the other. And there are no man-made bridges between the two sides. It's, it's kind of like if you ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon. No one's building a bridge across that thing. I mean, it's just too big. And this, well, this is far, far wider and far greater than the Grand Canyon. Jesus, in fact, is the only one to ever cross the chasm between us and God. A chasm that was caused and formed not by God, but by us, by our sin. 
And it was the perfect life of Jesus that constructed a bridge across this great chasm. And it was his death that paid the price that allowed us, the toll really, that allowed us to cross that bridge. At one point in the movie, the apocalypse character, as he's destroying the world, he tells Charles Xavier, the leader of the X-Men, what it will take to save the world. And this is the offer he makes. He says, rescue the weaklings, Charles. Give your life for theirs. It's a clear reference to what Jesus actually did. Jesus did this not in a comic book, but in reality. This is the only way to save us. He gave his life in exchange for our lives. And if we will follow him now in this life, he will take us across this bridge, and our eternity will end up on the God side of this chasm. But the key thing we need to understand is this bridge is only temporary. It only lasts in this life. Once this life is over, the bridge will be no more. And all that will remain is this great chasm. Honestly, I say all this with a heavy heart. I wish this was not so. And one of the reasons I wish this was not so is because this is, for me, this is not just truth. This is real. And this is, this is not just theory. There are people that I care deeply about who, as far as I can tell, are making no preparations to avoid hell. And I, some of them are close to death. They're getting old. And I cannot bear the thought of it. I can't bear the thought. So the lesson is, don't ignore Christ. There's way too much at stake. If you decide that he's a big hoax, do the research, come to that conclusion, but don't just back burner this. That brings us to truth number three. The outcome will end up being our choice. It'll be our choice. A lot of times people think that God's the one that's choosing all of this. Really, we're choosing. Listen to the rich man's second request. His first request was the delivery of a drop of water across the great chasm. Can't be done. So he comes up with a second request. He says, let him, speaking of Lazarus, warn them, speaking of his five brothers, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now, that would be a powerful warning, right? I mean, just imagine if someone that had died that you knew came back from death and told you, hey, this is what the future is really about. Get ready. You, you'd get ready, right? That's why he's asking this. But the answer that's given is this. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What he's saying is they've got the Bible. You know, this, this is the New Testament we're reading here. So the New Testament wasn't written yet. It was being put together in the words of Jesus. So he's referring to the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. He said they've got the Bible. They have been warned is what he's saying. Well, if hell is real, and as awful as it's described, then why doesn't God give a bigger warning? The reason is because the problem is never the size of the warning, it's the heart of of us, of the individual. People simply don't want to bow before Jesus. They, They want to live their life the way they want to live it. They don't want to yield to what Jesus taught in his ways. And so if a ghost comes back and scares them, well, they might change for a while, but it's not going to be a real decision, so it won't last. You can't be scared into heaven or into hell. 
It, it's a real decision. God leaves our freedom intact. It has to be a real decision. Heaven must be freely chosen. C.S. Lewis, I think, says this the best that I've ever seen. This is his quote. You may have heard this before. He says, in eternity, there will only be two kinds of people. Those who have said to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, will say, thy will be done. After a lifetime of saying, no, I don't have anything to do with you, God says, all right. I'll take those 8,345 no's as your final no. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you do what you want to do. You can spend eternity now apart from me. Thy will be done. So the lesson is what? Don't ignore the Bible. Don't ignore the Bible. You know, there is an accusation, a veiled accusation behind this second request. The accusation is this on the part of the rich man. Hey, I was, I was never warned properly. If I had any idea that this was in my future, do you think I would have chosen this? I wasn't warned enough. You need to put flashing lights on this thing and make sure that no one falls into this ditch. Well, again, the answer is what? Well, just like your brothers, you, you had the Bible. Well, let's just think about this. Here's a copy of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. This is exactly what the Bible looks like in the seats in front of you. Does this look like a warning to you? I mean, no, it just looks like a book, right? I mean, it doesn't even flash or, or make any sound. It's in black. I mean, you can get a red one, but most of them are in black. They, they don't even come with, you know, the warning kind of tape or label or anything on it to indicate that you really should check this out. This has got important stuff that's going to affect you forever. No, it's, it's just a book, and it just sits there for most people collecting dust, or maybe they don't even have a copy. So why would this be the way God would warn us about such a consequential eternity? Why the Bible? Well, in order to cross the bridge that Jesus constructed, we have to make two decisions. They come together, but they can be broken off into two decisions. We must first be convinced about the truth of what God says in that book. And then secondly, we must repent, which means to actually turn our life around and begin to structure and orient our days according to it. Now, the rich man was clear on the need to repent. He was looking at his brother's lives and saying, oh, no, they're going to end up here just like me. They, they, they've got to turn their lives around. And he, knowing his brothers, he knew it was going to take some big ghost-sized giant scare to get them to turn back to God. So he says, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he misunderstood what repentance really involves. Repentance is primarily internal. It's a change of heart. It's not just deciding to become a better person. It's not just kind of turning over a new moral leaf. You see, if that doesn't happen, then it's just momentary. So if you scare someone, then that lasts for a while, and then they stop being scared, kind of like after the years I stopped preparing for robberies. And then you got to scare them again, then you got to scare them again. It's like a rubber band. I mean, you, you can stretch it to a certain length, but as soon as you take the pressure off, it goes right back to the way it was. So how many ghosts would it take to keep people on a straight and narrow to get them to heaven? I don't know, depending on the person, but it, it probably would take a bunch. The only way to change a heart is you have to become convinced yourself. That's why the answer to scare them into repentance request is no. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I mean, they may be scared into a 
a few weeks and a few months of change, but they're not really going to be changed deep inside. The real driver of repentance is not external pressure, like that rubber band. It's, it's not holding someone in a position that they don't want to be in. It's the real driver of repentance is becoming convinced. So we can't be scared to cross this bridge. We have to be convinced personally. I, I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. You have to be convinced. I have to be convinced if we're going to cross it. And honestly, that can take some time. What that means is you have to read enough of this book to understand it. You have to have enough questions answered to trust what it says if you're going to actually build your life on it. Because when you come to a key point in your life where this book says do this and you really want to do this, if you don't trust this book, you yeah, I'm going to do this. So you have to have enough questions answered so you'll actually trust it and do what it says. Now, there, of course, is no magic number of pages required to read in order to repent from the heart. I mean, honestly, some can hear or read some of the very basic truths of the Bible, and they're convinced enough to follow Jesus right then. Makes sense? And they cross that bridge knowing very, very little of what's in this book. Over time, they learn more and they change more. But they don't know a whole lot at the beginning, just kind of the basics. And then there's other people, honestly, that are more like me, and they're just much more skeptical by nature. And people like me, well, we need to do a whole lot of reading <laughs> and thinking, and we need to get a whole bunch of our questions answered. There's no way to get them all answered, but we need to have enough of them answered before we're convinced enough to actually change our lives and repent. But no matter who you are, whether you're kind of easily convinced or whether you're more skeptical like me, no matter who you are, none of us are going to be able to stand before God and claim, I didn't know. No fair. You didn't write this in the sky. No, God will say, you have no idea the links I went to to reveal myself through the pages of this book and throughout history. You have the Bible. Did you pick it up? No. Did you read it once? Well, you had the warning. Now, I know a lot of people look at this book and say, it's so big. I mean, look at that. It's, this is not, this is small print in this thing. <laughs> this is a lot of words. And, you know, the average American would never read anything this big. I mean, we're, we're like, you know, novels. If it's a spy novel, okay, four or 500 pages of, you know, regular print, but not, not this. And, and to, to make matters worse, th this is, well, this, there's parts of this book that's, there's no way of saying it any other way. It's hard to understand. There's lots of this book that, oh, okay, that makes sense, I understand that. But there's other parts. You can get off in the weeds, and you can get lost in that thing and have a hard time finding your way out. So people get in this, and maybe they got lost in the weeds once and said, yeah, I'm not going to read that again. And they close it. It's big. It's, it's challenging. It's hard. I mean, the, the problem we have now is, you know, if you write a novel in this country, you know what grade level you have to write it at? Fourth. Fourth grade. You know what level this book is? 11th. There's a problem right there for the average American. But my, my answer to that is this. That's why God gave you a brain to match this book. I mean, I, I, probably most of you have passed fourth grade, right? So you have the brain. You're smart. You've learned all kinds of complicated things. In fact, I talk to some of you about what you do for work, and after you explain it, I'm like, I don't understand that. <laughs> you know, you, you had to spend a lot of time and, and get a lot of training or go to a lot of school to 
get as smart as you are to do what you do for work. So I know you can do it. It's just whether you really want to or not. As Jesus said, those who want to find me, they'll seek. If they don't want to find me, they won't seek. And they won't find me. So pick it up. Read it. In the movie, Jean, who is the telepathic mutant, has a dream in which she sees Apocalypse's vision of the future, and she tells Charles, you saw this in the, the trailer, a clip of it in the trailer. She tells Charles, I saw the end of the world. And Charles, trying to calm her down, says, Gina, it was just a dream. Well, later in the movie, when the Apocalypse supervillain is actually bringing about the destruction of the world, and they're all about to die, Charles says this, he says, the day of reckoning is upon us. And this isn't a dream anymore, this is real stuff. What I'm talking about this morning is not just a comic book thing that was invented in 1986. This is not just one possible version of how the world might end. This, this is what Jesus said is going to be. The day of reckoning will come for all of us. This is not a dream is real stuff. So I want to give you a chance to cross this eternal bridge this morning, if you never have. I know a bunch of you have, but some of you probably haven't. There's no pressure on this, just an opportunity. If you are still unconvinced about all of this, that's fine. I would say, don't stay there. Do the work, spend the time, investigate. Don't stay there. Your forever is at stake. If there's anything you want to put time in on, it's this. But if you are convinced enough to follow Jesus across this bridge and have him begin to reorganize the way you do life, then I want to invite you to join me in this prayer and settle which side of the chasm you're going to end up in for all of eternity. So join me in prayer. If, if you've already made this decision, then join me in affirmation of what you've already decided. But if you've never done this, then pray this with me. Let's pray. Father, first of all, we thank you for warning us about what the end will be and how to prepare for, us, prepare for it. And God, we admit that there is a great chasm between us, further than any effort we could ever cross. There's no amount of moral deeds we could do, no amount of rituals we could perform that would even begin to bridge this chasm. We constructed this chasm with our own sin. Every week and usually every day, we just make it deeper. And we're convinced that you, Jesus, are the only bridge across this chasm. Chasm, you're the only one. Your life for our life is the only way that we can, we can ever cross over from where we are to where you are. So today we, we decide to turn away from doing life our way. We decide, Jesus, we're going to follow you in this life and then into the one to come. We know we won't do it perfectly, but this will be our compass setting. And we will take this serious. And we will work to change as you give us help. So, Jesus, we, we ask for your forgiveness and we commit to follow you. And then we thank you for your mercy. And we ask for your help to follow you in this life. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. We've got some next steps for you to consider as we begin to wrap up this morning.
These are on the back of your connection card, bottom of your listening guide. The first one is if, if you made this decision with me while I prayed, then I would encourage you to tell someone that you've crossed this bridge if you did that today. It's important for you to not just do this in your own head, but in reality. And telling someone else makes it more real. In fact, we'd love to know if you made that decision today. Just below the next step list, there's please send me information about it. You can check the box that says my recent decision to follow Christ. So if this is the decision you made this morning, then just check that box. and We'd love to get you some information to help you. The second next step is pick up the Bible and read it. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, please grab one in the seat in front of you and take it as our gift to you. But don't just add it to your bookshelf. Read it. We'd love to have you read it. So take a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and read it. If you're brand new, you don't know where to start, I just start in the book of Luke. This is where this parable came from. Look it up in the table of contents. Go to chapter 16. Read the entire chapter and the parable. And then go back to the beginning of the book and read through the book of Luke this summer. It's Read it over and over again. It's the story of Jesus. So I would encourage you to pick the Bible up and read it. And then the last one is pray for three. What I mean by that is this summer uh, we are praying for three individuals that as best we know, people in our life, in our paths, that we know, and as best we can tell, they're not making preparations for the end. And we're just, we're praying for them this summer. A couple of weeks, or maybe three weeks ago now, we uh, put these invest and invite cards in the program. So if you were not here, or you lost yours, and you'd like another one, we have more of these on the round tables as you exit either side. You can just pick up another one of these. But just write the first name of three people that are in your life that you can pray for this summer, and then people that you can help, that you can serve in some way, and then people that you plan to invite this fall, particularly when we start our big day in September. Invite them to join you here at church. So I would encourage you to pick up one of these cards if you have not. Now, on a personal note, uh, I want to let you know that uh, Rebecca and I are going to be taking a little longer break this summer. We're going to be gone between now and the end of July. With the uh, input and blessing of the advisory team, we decided that it would be helpful for us to just take a little more time to fully rest and recharge. Um, I've been uh, leading here at Seabreeze for 26 years, and so felt like this would be uh, a good thing for us to do. While I'm gone, I'll be leaving the leadership of Seabreeze in the capable hands of Joe Gadotti, who's our executive pastor, so I encourage you to follow him well, and the other staff as well, and the other leaders here at Seabreeze. I also would ask that you just pray that God would refresh us in these next six weeks. Uh, nothing is wrong. We're just needing a little longer break, and so I'm very excited about what God is doing here at Seabreeze, and we look forward to being back. But I wanted to make you aware of this so that you don't think I just disappeared. Um, I'm gone, and I, I will return in six weeks. So let's pray together. Father, we, uh, again, we thank you for um, Jesus. We thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And that, as you said, that if we will seek after you, we will find you. You don't impose yourself on us. You don't force yourself on us. If we don't want to know about you, we won't. So I pray that you would, you would motivate us to seek after you. Out of all the things that we're doing in life and how busy we are, I pray that you would move us to seek and that we would find you. Father, there is, there is just simply no denying that something is deeply wrong with our world. This past week, the evidence of this was on display in Orlando. And we just know that it's just a matter of time before our attention and our horror is going to turn to yet another place of violence. And it'll be on the news and we'll be all shocked at what was done there. And honestly, Father, we're just, we're just tired of the common responses. The moments of silence in which no one really does anything. The, uh, 
familiar political scripts, we can just kind of write out what people are going to say on both sides every time this happens. And it just doesn't change. And we in this world, we, we need a change at the heart level. Oh, we could probably use some political solutions, but they, they never fix anything, really. So we need to change deeply. And Jesus, you're the only one that can do that. And so we ask you first that you would change us and that you would use us to change this world. We ask, Father, we ask, Father, for help. We pray for comfort for those who are grieving. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.